It's a trivia night. Woohoo. And the question is, how many pairs of sandals did the Apostle Paul wear out in his lifetime? <laughs> uh, the answer will be available when you get to heaven, although I'm sure that uh, if the erosion quality of leather was divided by the known stadia travelled and multiplied by the coefficient of something or, or, or other, some boffin would probably come up with a very reasonable answer. Wouldn't they, Rod? <laughs> Whatever. As you probably know, uh, the Apostle Paul was very big on walking and also boat rides. Yes, you could say that he loved cruises, <laughs> although they were of a very different kind. Uh, who he loves cruises? <laughs> uh, how, how many have you been on? Two. Uh, where's Bruce and Merlin? How many have you been on? <laughs> how many cruises have you been on? Six. <laughs> any, any takers? Any more than six? Okay. You can t- seven. Sandy's been on seven. Okay. Well, you know all about them. Uh, he was also really big on letter writing. And what we call 1 Thessalonians is just one of at least 13 letters, <laughs> more than six or seven, uh, which we know he wrote to various churches. Uh, letters which now form a substantial part of the New Testament. We know from Acts 9 that Paul was converted uh, on the road to Damascus shortly after Jesus had ascended, around 34 AD. We also know that after his conversion, he began evangelising in Damascus and was very (laughs) unpopular. He had his life threatened and escaped by being lowered in a basket over a city wall at night. He then headed off for Jerusalem uh, where he tried to link up with the other apostles. He preached for a while in and around Jerusalem, but again his life was threatened. And so the apostles sent him off to Tarsus, a place called Tarsus. Uh, We're told this in Acts chapter 9. Perhaps you might like to look it up as we'll be referring to a couple of passages in Acts before we look at 1 Thessalonians. In Acts chapter 9 verses 26 to 30, uh, I think it's on page 1669, if you'd like to follow on, 1669, Acts 9, 26 to 30, we're told this, that when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, that is Paul, uh, on his journey has seen the Lord, had seen the Lord, And that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul, that is Paul, stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, that is Greek Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, not much is heard of Paul, as I keep saying other names Saul, for the next 10 years or so until he pops up again in Antioch, where we see him and Barnabas being commissioned for the first of three missionary trips, (laughs) cruises. (laughs) I'll read about that bit. It's found in Acts 13. Yes, Acts 13. 1 to 3. Now, 
In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, yes, a lot of nice baby names, <laughs> you having a baby? <laughs> Lots of no names here, who've been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, that is Paul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, I'm not too sure how, but said to them this, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Yes, that was the start of their first trip. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 13 and 14. About a year later, the end of Acts 15, Paul sets off again, and this time with Silas and Luke, to revisit some of the churches which he and Barnabas had established in that very first trip. While they were doing this, Paul has a dream. Ever had a dream from the Lord? I don't, I don't mean a crazy, wacko dream, but a dream from the Lord? Well, Paul had a dream. And in Acts 16, 9 to 10, yes, Acts 16, 9 to 10, we're told this. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so having now added a bloke called Timothy to the team, he does what he was told in that dream or that vision and heads off to Macedonia and Greece. After passing through Philippi, hence one of the New Testament books, they come to the Macedonian town of Thessalonica, hence the two books of the Bible addressed to them in that town. And it's about 49 AD. Now, I usually don't do this, but I think it might help us, so I'll reread Acts 17, 1 to 9. Acts 17, 1 to 9, we're on page 1683. When Paul and his companions had passed through Anthropolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue or church. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, the church, and on three Sabbath days, it would have been Saturday back then, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded. Uh, I've lost my line. <laughs> Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. 
and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And so under threat, Paul then leaves the town and travels south to Corinth where he spends the next 18 months, we're told, teaching the word of God amongst them, Acts 18.11. So now it's 50 to 52 AD. He had left Silas and Timothy way back in Macedonia and when they eventually joined him, they brought news that the fledging church at Thessalonica was in a very poor shape. No. (laughs) This new church was actually in great shape. Wow. And so Paul writes two letters to them from Corinth, where he now is, and we're going to spend the next several Sundays looking at the first of these letters. And Dan and Lucy gave us a good skit, didn't they, to introduce this series of what we should be concentrating on. Yes, thank you, Dan, and thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Lord. Now, this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is not a theological treatise found in the letter uh, to, in his letter to the Romans, so you can relax. <laughs> it's not that heavy. Neither is this letter a rebuke for being on about the wrong gospel, like the one to Galatia, let alone, sadly, some churches today. Nor is this letter a corrective one, as with the letter to the Corinthians. Rather, this letter is an affirmation and encouragement to a young church. Perhaps this is exactly what we need, exactly what I need, an affirmation and encouragement to a young church, dare I say, Northern Hope Anglican Church, NHA. After all, as Craig said, uh, we're only one week old. Yes, one week. It's hard to believe. One week old and having an anniversary. (laughs) It almost deserves another cake, doesn't it? (laughs) Anyone bring a cake along? (laughs) One week old. Interestingly, although one would say that this letter is an affirmation and encouragement to one's readers, the subject of eschatology seems to be predominant in both these letters to this particular church. Do you know what I mean by the word eschatology, as it is a big theme in these two letters? Who he knows what eschatology means? S.D. End times, yeah. End times. The word eschatology or eschatos is last, last days, end times. Yes, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, every chapter, have a look at it, ends with a reference to the second coming of Jesus, the last days, the end time. Come Lord Jesus is a big theme in affirming and encouraging this young church. As I said, this letter is very, very, very 
apt to us also today. Uh, We might be a young church, and we certainly are, but we are obviously in the end times too, the last days. Just look at the world around us. Hence why many of you are saying, or starting to say now, come Lord Jesus, come. But we need to start out by firstly trying to grasp how thankful, yes, how thankful Paul was that this young church, young church was alive and thriving. Do you know what? It was only uh, this past week that I had some conversations with some of you and we spoke about this very thing. I said something like, quote, for a long time now, I think we've found ourselves looking at each other too much rather than to him, rather than trusting and delighting in him. And last Sunday was when I sensed for the first time in a long time the joy, yes, the joy of trusting and delighting in him. And we never forget to do that. That is to be like that. Anyway, we need to remember that Paul had only been in Thessalonica a little over three weeks. He had three anniversaries. (laughs) Three weeks. Imagine a parallel situation today. Imagine a town which has never heard the gospel. You share the gospel with probably a very few uh, diverse people, a mixed people, and seemingly some are now converted. But then after three weeks, that's not very long, you are forced to leave in a hurry. How would you feel if you are Paul? I suppose you would feel that you were leaving behind a very fragile church indeed. No buildings? Hello? We don't have one yet. No more theological uh, college-trained pastor? Probably no sworn-in leaders? Probably no treasurer or secretary? Probably no children's church? Probably no parish council? No New Testament yet? No diocese? No bishops? No Glenn Davies? No canons, no ordinances, no synod. Just three weeks of basic teaching. Goodness me, you're probably thinking, like I am, how could a church like that survive? (laughs) Well, that's how it would have been for Paul. Yet this church in Thessalonica did survive. And not only did it survive, they were actually going from strength to strength. I'm sure you noticed that, Dan, as you looked at that chapter, Dan and Lucy. So Paul was justifiably ecstatic. (laughs) Chapter 1 bubbles over with his joy and thankfulness. Hence why Lucy said, I go to church every Sunday. (laughs) Let's try to enter into Paul's thoughts in these opening verses. Follow along with me as I sort of paraphrase what is being said here, what David read to us earlier. And this is a paraphrase I made up. Paul, Silas and Timothy, 
to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Uh, we continually thank God for all of you. Know that we continually pray for you and that as we do, we remember before our God and Father your work of faith. We remember how you are motivated and prompted in all you do by love. And we remember your ability to endure is grounded in the firm hope you have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you are our brothers and sisters loved by God. And we know that he has chosen you. How? Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with the power of the Holy Spirit, a power evidenced by your deep conviction. You know how we lived among you, not for our sake, but for your sake. You know how, out of the love we had for you, that we gave of ourselves for your sake. In giving of ourselves to you, we were modelling our lives on the life of Jesus. And oh, what joy. You saw our lives, how we conducted ourselves, and you yourselves became imitators of us and therefore of the Lord himself. You welcomed our message with the joy given to you by the Holy Spirit. And you did this in spite of, yes, in spite of the severe suffering the message of Jesus has brought upon you. In turn, your response to the good news concerning Jesus became a model to others in the neighbouring towns and beyond. Your faith in God has actually become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. We don't even have to declare it because people everywhere have heard the good news about you. They have heard about the kind welcome you gave us. They have heard of your conversion to Christ. They tell how you turn to God from the things of this world so as to serve the living and true God. They tell how you are now waiting for his son, Jesus, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Yes, Jesus, who you now know rescues us from what is to come. And what is yet to come? God's poured out anger. Uh, friends, when I hear all of this, you probably have no idea and I'll get emotional if I talk about it for too long. <laughs> Just how thankful and thrilled I am. I'm so thankful and thrilled that you are strong in your faith. That you are going on in the Lord. That you are not looking back. And Paul had every right himself to be thankful and thrilled. It was a miracle. But then becoming a Christian is a miracle. <laughs> and remaining a Christian is a miracle, isn't it? And Paul highlights the evidence. Without any of the trappings of what we today call church, 
this fledgling church at Thessalonica flourished with none of the things which I mentioned earlier in place and with only three weeks, yes, three weeks, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Three weeks of teaching by the apostle. Not only did this church survive, it went from strength to strength to strength. But how come? Like, was Paul that good? Or was it simply a fluke? It's how come? Uh, the answer here lies in verses 4 to 5 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. How come? We're told in verse 4 and 5, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. Dunamis, dynamite. With the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Friends, this church survived and grew because, because God chose its members. This church survived and grew because God entered into them through the Holy Spirit. So that as they heard the word of, God, of the gospel proclaimed, they were convicted of the truth, the power of the gospel of Jesus to save them from the wrath to come. This church survived and grew because God caused it to survive and to grow and we do need to keep remembering this. Yes, one can plant. <laughs> We've done that, I suppose. One can water. But only God brings about any growth. It is him who causes his church to grow. I think one of the biggest dangers we face is that of seeing the church as some kind of institution which we must somehow maintain rather than as the living God-grown body that it is. Imagine if you can where we might be if we were in Thessalonica back then. Without buildings, without a structured service, as I said, without a more theological college-trained pastor, without any church leaders, without a parish council, without an AGM meeting, without a budget, without a treasurer, without an accountant, without an auditor, without children's church, without a youth group, without a play group, without screens, <laughs> without microphones, without New, without New Testaments, without a diocesan structure, without a synod, without a property trust, without a bishop, without rules, canons and ordinances and with only three weeks of Bible teaching. Like, what would be left of church? Where would we be? What would we be? If all this institutional structure was suddenly removed, what would we be? Well, we would still, yes, still be the church of northern hope in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Hallelujah to that. <laughs> Hallelujah. We would be the church sustained by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A gospel which has made us alive. Alive in us now by the power of the Holy Spirit. One thing which is crystal clear from this letter to the church at Thessalonica is that what builds and sustains the church is not... You know all about this, Barry. (laughs) What builds and sustains the church is not the structure. It is God and his gospel. Outside God and his gospel... Concerning his son, there is nothing of substance, nothing of significance, nothing of importance. Hence why we sing his praises. How about we stand and sing about the amazing grace he has shown us through his gospel. Now I, th- <laughs> now, I think there are about 16 versions of amazing grace the last time i looked there were <laughs> and this is just one of them it might not be your favorite but that doesn't matter what matters is what god thinks as we sing to him and as we sing to each other so friends please stand jenny and steph come down the front as we sing amazing grace <laughs>